Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. So excited for you to join me this Thanksgiving week to talk about an incredible man who was a big part of what we consider the first Thanksgiving, William Bradford. But before we get into his amazing story and some of the facts that surround that first Thanksgiving, I just want to mention we had our event in October and we did have books there. Uh physical copies of The Mission Driven Life. We sold a lot of them. We only ordered about 300 and they're mostly gone. I think we have about 75 left. Now, unfortunately, we did not get more ordered in time because we found a few typos in that copy. There's a lot of additional material like the 12 characteristics of true principles and more information on how to find principles and some uh, additional stories that were added. So I think it's even a a better book now. But we do want to fix it up just a tiny bit more and change out some of those um, typos and, and mess ups so that it's perfect. But we didn't get it done quickly enough and the printer just told us it's gonna take three weeks to get copies here once we actually turn in the order. And so we won't be able to get them here and then get them out to you in time for Christmas. So that's the bad news. (laughs) The good news is we have about 75 left. And for anyone who really wants some for Christmas, uh, we can sell out those last 75 until they're gone because there are some typos. The book normally goes for $16.99, but we're going to sell it to you for $12. And if you buy them in bulk, that would be like... 20 copies or more, then we can give them to you for 10. And we have those right now. We They're actually uh, with one of the board members and she's happy to mail them out to you. And so if you'll send us off an email to info at themissiondrivenmom.com and let us know how many you'd like to purchase, we can charge you um, over the phone through the square and then get those mailed off to you because the other part of the problem with the book is that the store isn't finished. Our tech people are working on it very diligently. And so we need to have the store finished up so that you can buy them there and buy the academy there. And so we're just, as we grow, trying to accommodate the growth and it just has taken a little more time than we thought it was gonna take. So we're sorry about that inconvenience a little bit. We will have more copies available at the first of the year. And that will be the, the newest, best of the best, um, revised version that we can possibly make it. And um, you can wait till then to buy it if you'd like. And we'll probably have a launch sale when we put those back out again for the online purchasers. But we do have a few we can sell until they're gone. So... Uh, let us know, info at themissiondrivenmom.com if you'd like some hard copies of the book, The Mission Driven Life, and we will let you know when we have more copies. Probably realistically, uh, January to February time is when we'd have those available and do that online hard copy launch sale. 
So that's the news. The other bit of news is that I'm going to take a few weeks off over the holidays. We're going to have all of our kids here. I'm really excited to spend some time with them. So uh, I'm going to take a few week break on the podcast. You'll have a couple more going into December and then I will be back the second or uh, probably about the second week of January with some new and improved podcast series for you. I'm going to give you finally the promised feminist series and um, some other really great content. I've got a a cool list of stuff that I want to talk to you about. And um, we have more innovations for improving the podcast in the future as well. So please continue to share it out and um, let other people know. For those, uh, I haven't mentioned this on the podcast recently either, our our cottage meeting program is growing fast. We've been having them every weekend, sometimes two weekends, sometimes three a weekend. And um, you can do them live in the, in the West, Utah, Idaho, Washington, maybe even down into Nevada area. We've got the opportunity for you to have them live. I'm in Texas and can travel around that area to do them live. And if not, you can do them online. You get $100 off the Academy when you host one. And the attendees also get a big discount when they attend the cottage meeting and get discounts on the book and on the Academy and all that cool stuff. And it's just a great way to share the message. So if you're loving what we're doing at the Mission Driven Mom, you might want to consider hosting a cottage meeting. We're going to take a few weeks off for that at Christmas as well, but we'll be back in full force in January. You can contact us at info at the Mission Driven Mom or... If you want to contact Julie directly, she is our public relations uh, board member. She is PR at themissiondrivenmom.com. And you can let her know that you're interested in hosting a cottage meeting and she will get you all set up. So with all of that business behind us, let's get started on William Bradford. I, of course, um, knew about, you know, Jamestown and Plymouth and all the things and and was excited about those things. But somewhere along the line, I was not exposed to the fact that William Bradford actually wrote a book about the founding of Plymouth. It's called Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford. And uh, some information is drawn from that book and from a book that I guess is kind of considered, I guess it would be a youth book. It's in Heroes of History series. It's called William Bradford, Plymouth's Rock, Janet and Jeff Benjen. Of course, as always on the Mission Driven Mom podcast page, you'll find the quotes and the timestamps and the books that are referenced in these podcasts. And so you can go check that out if you'd like to get more uh, details or read some of these things yourself or with your family. So, so, so fascinating. There are so many little details in what went down um, and, and the man that William Bradford was and the sacrifices that he made that I really did not know. And it's just been a joy to learn more about him. He's absolutely incredible. So he was born March 19th, 1590. And when he was one year old, his father died. His father had some land um, in England and was established probably a kind of maybe an upper middle class kind of situation or just maybe middle class, but established, had a home and a farm. And um, because Robert was his oldest, he was set to inherit that land. And um, when he was four years old, his mother remarried. Now he had, I think it was an older sister. So there were two of them. 
And when he was four years old, his mother remarried and the, the, his mom and new stepdad sent he and his sister to live with their grandfather. And I don't know if they just needed some time alone or if that was going to be permanent or why they made that choice. But they went to live with this grandfather and it didn't last very long. I don't know exactly how long it lasted, but maybe a year or two at most. And then the grandfather died. So here he is, five years old. He's lost a father. He's lost a grandfather. And the family sent them back to live with their mom and stepfather. And then when he was seven years old, his mother died in childbirth. So pretty much all the natural um, parents and grandparents that he had passed away before he was seven years old. And he did have some half siblings. I think two of them, I think the baby survived, but the mom died. I'm not sure. Um, and so the stepfather sent him to live on the family farm with his uncles. William was supposed to inherit it, but the uncles were running the farm and probably, you know, profiting from it in, in the meantime while they waited for William to grow up and be 21 and be able to inherit. But he was considered a really frail boy. I don't know if this is because of the amount of loss that he'd had or he was a little bit sickly as he was a boy. He definitely wasn't as an adult. But that was kind of the mindset about him. And so he, uh, his uncles, rather than having him work on the farm with them, they hired a tutor for him. And he got a really phenomenal education. And um, of course, the Christian faith was really strong in England. And this is the time when you had the, the, the back and forth, you know, kings and queens that, you know, one was loyal to the Church of England and then one was loyal to the Catholic Church. And they would persecute those who weren't loyal to their, their chosen religion. And so this was going on in England and it was really a time of a lot of religious persecution. And, and who was being persecuted with change, would change based on the monarchy. And, and so it was a really um, kind of religiously volatile and scary time. And so here's William. He is spending a lot of time studying, reading classics. He was a really great student, especially in reading and writing and math. And he read a lot, a lot of great books. But about this time, not very long before William was born, a book was written called, the, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this book had a profound impact on him. And it went back, uh, started in the Bible, and it went through Western history. And it told the stories of people who had died for, uh, I think just for the Christian faith, um, died for their beliefs. I'm not absolutely positive about that. But he read this book and reread this book and reread this book. And it had really this profound impact on him. And um, he was really fascinated by these stories of people. Now, this that, that had died for what they believed. And it, had, it really shaped his character. It had a profound effect on his willingness to suffer for what he believed because he was to suffer profoundly for what he believed. And I am sure that in the same way that um, I return to, you know, religious stories and the 10 booms and, and, and great individuals, I, I, I think of I think of all kinds of heroes that I had and the sacrifices that they made. And, and it fuels me, you know, and it and inspires me. And this was the influence of this book on William. So now it's 1602 and William is 12 years old. And Queen Elizabeth dies. 
and King James of Scotland becomes King of England. And he takes up residence in London and he is for the Church of England, but he wants it done in a certain way. So the Puritan, what it means to be a Puritan is that you want to purify the Church of England from all elements of the of Catholicism. So they wanted to be able to worship in their own way and and study the Bible and interpret it in in a way that they felt was correct and be able to be have the freedom to live their beliefs as they would. And King James didn't want that. <laughs> he wanted there to be a Church of England that looked a certain way that he was going to control. So as soon as he was kind of settled in, a bunch of Puritan leaders gave him a document and they were, it was 30 requests that they had that they wanted to change the Church of England in a way to take out these, these Catholic elements. And so King James said, okay, well, we'll have a big conference then and we'll go over these points, these requests that you've made. And he rejected every single one of them. <laughs> so uh, not really working on compromise there. And he said, I'll do one of them. I'll have a new copy of the Bible translated. I'm happy to do that. So that's what our King James version of the Bible is, is when he had the King James version translated at that time into English. He wanted there to be a book of common prayer, which you can still look up online, which is a thing. And the Puritans didn't get what they wanted. And so now there kind of becomes this split with the Puritans. And there's a group that splits off of the Puritans called the Separatists. So King James starts cleaning out the churches. If a preacher doesn't teach what he wants taught from this common book of prayer and from these other like authoritative sources that he's approved, then they're kicked out. Some of them are put in jail. So this Separatist group starts up and they're, they, you know, they decide they're going to live according to the dictates of their conscience and they're going to live the Christian faith in the way that they think that they ought to be able to, in the way that they believe that, that it's true. In the meantime, William gets really interested in Puritanism and he's reading up on it and he finds a group that's meeting. He finds a young uh, a boy that's, that's walking to a church pretty far away and William says, I, I want to go with you. I want to check out Puritanism with you. And so they walk 12 miles every Sunday together to go to a church. And the preacher there is is um, Clifton. And eventually he steps down because of all this upheaval in the Church of England. He doesn't want to preach things he doesn't believe. And so he just steps down. But And, and William's friend stops going, but he continues to go. And on the way there, he runs through a town where William Brewster lives. William Brewster's 12 years older than him, and they become lifelong friends, and their lives are really connected to each other. And so he would meet up with William Brewster, and they would finish walking to church. And he was very, very dedicated to, um, to this group. So when they split off and became separatists by the time that was really happening in full swing william was about 15 and he decided that this was the only decision that those who sell who held the reformist ideals could properly make and so he keeps going to church with william brewster and attending these meetings and um 
by 1607, when he's 17 years old, it becomes clear that if they want to keep worshiping the way they want to worship, they're going to be imprisoned. Like it's just, it's getting worse. And so they decide they're going to escape. And of course they did as, as many did at that time and went to flee to Holland where there was a lot of religious freedom. So they made their first attempt at escaping and they were caught and William was in prison for a month and Brewster and some of the other top leaders um, were put on trial for this attempted escape. So the next year when William was 18, they attempted an escape again and they had this whole thing all worked out where they had this ship all uh, hired and the women and children were going to get onto it and then the men were going to walk a, a, a long way and meet up with them and they were going to get on secretly in this whole thing. But it turned out that they, the women and children wanted to go in closer to shore because they were getting seasick and the men hadn't arrived and all this thing. And so then they took a transport of some of the men, about half the men out to the main boat. And just as they got onto the boat, so they were the only ones on the main boat, the women and children were on a smaller little ship that was going to take them to the main boat. Just as those men got on the, the ship that was going to take them to Holland, the, um, the police showed up. And it says, um, the, sh- the ship's captain says, I'm not staying here to be arrested. Bring up the long boat, boat, host the anchor, and unfurl those sails. Let's be underway. And he takes off. He sails away. William knew he would never forget the sight around him. Tears ran down the faces of the separatist men as they looked back in horror, realizing that their wives and children and their fellow separatist men were being left behind and they were helpless to do anything about it. So they literally stood there on the side of the ship and watched their wives and children being arrested and there was nothing they could do about it. They just hoped that, you know, when they got there, they could come back and rescue them somehow. Many of them did. It took them 14 days to get to Holland because there was a huge storm. So they had to wait it out for two weeks. They finally got there. A bunch of them headed back to try to get them. Luckily, they had just been imprisoned for a short time and let go. And so then uh, many of them were able to make it over to Holland. So now they're living in Holland and it's, it's really brutal. Um, they're living in the city and even though they have religious freedom, they don't have a lot of skills because they're mostly farmers. And so they're trying to work in the textile industry. They don't have agreements with some of the other separatists that are there. I mean, you can imagine the divisions that are going on. It gets to the point of kind of nitpicking in terms of, no, it's this doctrine or that doctrine or whatever. So they, they struggle to stay unified just as separatists and, and William Brewster and William Bradford's group actually moved to Leyden away from some of the other separatists and tried to make a go of things there. And so um, this is kind of the conditions that they were in there. Everyone had to work hard to raise the money needed to survive. Even the children, some as young as four years old, had to work. The truth was, if a family could not make enough money, they were in danger of starving to death, especially since the price of food at the market seemed to rise steadily. They lived on a side um, of town called Stink Alley because it smelled badly all the time. They were in really cramped quarters. Everyone was working to try to just survive. And um, several of the children had already died, including the Brewster's new baby. And many families worked with linen 
and over the years, tiny, wiry flax fibers had lodged in their lungs, making it hard to breathe. So time goes on. They live there for several years, and they're having all these hard consequences. I didn't know that when you worked in linen that it could cause this this lung damage. But all these hard things are happening, and they just keep living there, hoping to get by and hoping to stay alive and in the meantime a few years goes by and William turns 21 and he's able to get someone to help him sell his land in England and he uses the money to help his congregation he buys a loom um, so that he can have more work and a little tiny house he marries uh, and he uses the rest of the money to help other people buy houses and to take care of the pastor and all these other things it's really really quite an amazing guy just so generous, just never, never interested in, you know, getting rich or materialism, just totally focused on taking care of the people around him and living according to his beliefs. So now they've been there a few years and the year 1621 is approaching. And this is a problem because the Dutch had had this ongoing war with the Spanish and had won their independence and signed a treaty. But the treaty was going to be up in 1621. And when it was up, Holland could very well go back to war with Spain and they could lose their religious freedoms. And so as 1621 is approaching, the separatists are getting more and more uncomfortable and thinking more and more about, you know, our, our children are just basically becoming totally like Hollanders rather than English. And... We may lose our religious freedom here too, and we really think there needs to be a change. So over the course of like a year or two, they're really thinking about this and pondering what they want to do. And they decide that they want to go to the new world. They know that it's going to be tough. They know that there are risks, but they want to be able to live in a place where they can live according to their beliefs and they don't have to run the risk and be afraid of, of being arrested and being imprisoned and being put on trial and they don't want to just live according to what somebody else says is true. And so they determine that they're going to go to the new world. This is in 1617. And they start trying to get land grants so that they can actually own the land that they are on in New England. The Virginia company that funded Jamestown is the first natural place to go. But that doesn't really work out. And then Holland makes an offer to them and says, if you'll... If you'll found a Dutch colony, then we'll fund you. And they were going to, it was a really quite a nice offer. They were going to give them all this um, animals and pay for the trip and all this kind of thing. And they just decided that they were Englishmen and they, they didn't want to found a Dutch colony. They wanted to found a, an English colony. And so they found a group called the Merchant Adventures. And this was a pretty newly formed um, investment group. And... Things didn't always go really well with these guys. They they didn't keep a lot of their promises and things kind of went south. But in the beginning, it looked like it was going to go pretty well. They made an agreement. I won't give you all the details, but basically they were going to send them over there and fund the trip. And then the pilgrims were going to pay them back for the trip by sending them money over a period of time. And they were going to be allotted a couple days a, work, a week to work for themselves and then the rest of the time, what they earned would go back and, and be sent to these guys as profit. And then after seven years, they would be all paid off and they would own their own land and, and they, this agreement would be done. And so they finally get this agreement all put in place. It takes all the way till 1619. 
that they're working on this agreement. In fact, they finally don't finalize everything until 1620. In 1619, a group of their friends that they know from Holland head over there in, uh, their, in their own ship. And there's this huge, massive storm, and they receive word that 130 of them died. So they actually have friends who have died just making the trip over there, not even not even setting up their colony. I mean, these these people are their the conviction is just through the roof and their courage is absolutely unbelievable and their determination. I mean, in today's world, we would just say they were just religious fanatics and they were just on the verge of just being, you know, just just crazy, but they they didn't see themselves that way. They really believed what they believed and they didn't want to be forced to live according to the Catholic rules and rights and uh, rituals. They they wanted to study the Bible and live according to its dictates and according to their conscience. So they get this arrangement all in place and they show up in England to get on this boat that the merchant adventurers have chartered. And they find out that the merchant adventurers have gotten a whole bunch of other people that are going to go with them that aren't separatists because the whole goal is to build this separatist colony and to, to, you know, be unified and be one and, and, and worship God and Christ together. And yet they're sending all these strangers. In fact, they called them the strangers. And so there were the separatists and the strangers on this boat. And some of them were indentured servants. Two of them were um, children whose parents had divorced and the dad got custody or the mom had died and the dad was just kind of a bad guy and he paid for them to just, he just sent them off to America without him. So this wasn't necessarily a great group. There were, uh, not that they were bad people, it's just that they didn't believe the way that the separatists believe and the separatists saw that as a problem in building a a, a town and a colony together, which which is really true. It would it would make it much more difficult. Some of them had skills that the that the colonists the separatists didn't have, and so that could be helpful. And some of them were just kind of a pain and hard to work with, and they didn't know each other. They weren't friends, and so all of that made it harder. They had three. They had two false starts where the boat started leaking, and so they had to go back, and that scared a few people off. So they got off the boat, but in the end, they had a little bit over a hundred people on just the Mayflower, and they left on September 6, 1620, which was already really late. They should have left in the summer, um, and they would have more time to get food together and all that kind of stuff, but they left really late. Now, the conditions on board, I won't read you all of this because it's really quite vile, and and this isn't even very graphic, but it says... um, it was, it was what William considered the closest thing to hell to be. They were left, the, the, the cooks would only cook for the crew. And so the passengers were left to fend for themselves. And since they had nowhere to cook, they ate cold food, hardtack biscuits, dried beef, and cheese. Most of the passengers lost their interest in food early on. Many became seasick and the space between decks soon stank really badly. They, there was unhygienic conditions. There wasn't a place to really go to the bathroom. And so it was just, I mean, you can just use your imagination for how terrible it was down there. It's amazing more people didn't die. In fact, no one died until they actually got to um, the new world. Finally, the first person, well, I think one other guy died, but then they had more deaths uh, that first year. So 
it's it's a rough trip, really terrible conditions. But they finally get to America and they realize that they're not anywhere near um, where they thought they were going to be. They're supposed to be near Cape Cod and they realize they don't think they are. And they're not sure exactly where to settle because their land grant doesn't really match it. And they figure out that they can't make it down to Jamestown and um, for several reasons. And so they're going to have to find a place that they want to build their colony. They go on shore. They look around at several different spots. By this time, it's um, November and then into December. It's absolutely freezing cold. They have a little encounter with Indians and they do find a hill with some seed corn in it, which is which is a bit of a lifesaver. They finally go out on the last five day expedition. I mean, there's there's frostbite. I mean, it's just the men are doing this. Everybody else is still on ship. The, The ship conditions are, you can imagine, just still horrible. And William Bradford. Now, I forgot to tell you that he married and they had one son and in the end they decided to leave their son with his grandparents and hope that he would come over later i think they were just afraid he'd die on the voyage so they figured we'll go over there we'll we'll get some shelter we'll get some food growing we'll get things in place and then he can come with some friends and family can bring him later so he william goes out on all these expeditions on land i mean everywhere there's a man needed william's there doing what what needs to be done but before I tell you on this last expedition, so going back a little bit, they get there at the end of November. I think it's November 20th. And they, um, they're pulling up to shore. They're just about to, la- they're going to land. They've seen land. They know they're going to land soon. And they realize, you know what? We're really different people and we're going to have to live together. And there was already talk of people saying, well, I don't have to follow the leadership and I don't have to do what you guys say and all this kind of thing. And so they decide William is one of the first ones that says we need to sign some kind of contract together. We need to make an agreement before our feet touch land about what it's going to look like when we get there. I just thought, I don't know, I guess that they were really great people and they understood governmental principles. So they just made this compact, but it was very practical. Like there were some people saying that they were going to rebel and not, um, and not obey authority. And so they sat down with leadership from the, from the strangers and from the separatists, they were able to elect, um, John Carver. Well, he eventually got elected the, the governor and they write the Mayflower compact, which I've put on the, podcast page for you. You can find it online anywhere. It's really short. And it just basically says that we're dedicating this new place to God and to our King. And we covenant with each other that we will put together a government that we agree upon, that we will elect our officers fairly, and that we will obey the laws and ordinances that we put in place with acts, constitutions, and offices um, for the, that will be for the general good of the colony. We all promise do submission and obedience and witness, and they all signed it. So that was just absolutely incredible, so wise, made such a huge difference, really united everyone and created order from the beginning. So then they land and they the first group goes to shore. And of course, that first group consists, you know, William Bradford was in that first group. When they reach shore, 
William Brewster was one of the first ones to do so, and he laid down his musket and fell to his knees. The other men followed his lead. He said, Blessed be the God in heaven who has brought us over this vast and furious ocean. You have delivered us from the perils and miseries at sea and set our feet on firm and stable ground, our proper place to dwell. For this we thank you and bless you. So this was the first prayer. William Bradford uh, was part of that prayer and participated. That was the very first thing that these uh, men did when they landed in America was pray and thank God. And, you know, some people will say that, I don't know, they were giving lip service to their beliefs or I, I think with the pilgrims, people really believed that they really believed it. But it's just amazing. In fact, there's several times during the several weeks when they're trying to find a place to settle that it's Sunday and they don't do anything. I mean, there's so many things that need to be done and they just rest and worship. It's just, it's unbelievable how dedicated they were to their faith. So there's so much more to this incredible story and we're running short on time. So I'm going to try to summarize as best I can. So they're trying to find a place where they can build a colony and there's certain conditions that they need to find. So finally on this last five day venture, they've landed, they've prayed, they've looked around, they can't go to Jamestown. They finally find a place and they head back to the ship. And as soon as William Bradford gets on board, he's told that his wife has died. She slipped on ice on deck and fell over shore into the icy waters and they were unable to recover her. So here he is, he's landed, he's finally made it, he's gonna have religious freedom and his son is back in England and his wife is, is, is dead. And he doesn't blame God, he tries to move on and just continue to do what needs to be done. So really so tragic. In fact, before he left England the first time, both of his sisters died. I mean, the, the number of people close to him that died is just mind boggling. So that first year, uh, they build cottages and a common house and they just try to live on what they have brought with them. The conditions are horrible. They're freezing to death. They don't have enough to eat. They try to build some fortifications on the hill nearby and almost half of them die the first year. So the next spring, a man, uh, an Indian wanders into town. They haven't had much interactions with the Indians yet, but a man, uh, an Indian named Samoset shows up and he says hello in English <laughs> and he starts speaking to them in English and they're absolutely blown away. Well, there have been actually several different groups that have come over and Samoset has learned some English and he loves English food. And so he wants to eat with them and he hangs around for a few days. And a little bit later, a few days later, he brings some more men with him. And one of the men that he brings with him is a man named Squanto. Now, Squanto's story is fascinating. Of course, I'd always heard of him and I knew a little bit about him. I knew he was a huge help this first year and really is, is the primary reason they survived. In fact, William Brewster said multiple times that he really believed that Squanto was the hand of God in their lives, that he was divinely sent. So Squanto was actually kidnapped by the English twice, <laughs> lived in England for a while and escaped the second time or was set free and made it back each time. Now, what's, what's fascinating about the, the Squanto story too is, so he's fluent in English. He understands the British ways. 
He understands the British religion and he's friendly and he wants to work with um, work with them and be friends with them and help them. It's just he doesn't have any reason that he has to. Now, the place where they had decided to put their colony was all cleared land, but it was clear nobody had lived there in a few years. And here's why. I think it was about four or five years prior, prior, Squanto had actually lived in a village on that exact land. That's where he had grown up. And he was kidnapped. And when he was away in England, a plague came through and killed everyone in his village. He was the only survivor. So not only was he a friendly, you know, Indian man, not only was he happy to help, not only was he fluent in English and understood the British ways, but he had actually lived on that exact plot of land. And so he knew exactly where to find all the food and how to grow the food and how to nourish the land, how to put, you know, he taught him to, to fish and to put the fish in the, in the little thing to, as it broke down, it would create nutrients for the seeds and so that they would grow. And he was just this incredible help to them. And so they worked really hard. They grew a bunch of food. They had a successful year. And that, in the meantime, these two men, Samoset and Squanto, had helped them create a pact with the, uh, a, a, a chief over several groups named Massasoit. And they created this peace treaty. And neither William Bradford, who ended up being the governor of Plymouth most of its most of his adult life, but Massasoit never breached that treaty either. They were at peace with each other all their lives, which is just amazing. And in fact, the Plymouth colony had really great relations with Indians. As a general rule, there were a couple times when there were actions that had to be taken so that the Native Americans knew that the pilgrims were going to defend themselves and stand up for themselves. They just had to know that, you know, because that's how they lived. But pretty much they traded with each other and, and were at peace with each other. And so that fall, William Bradford decided, um, John Carver died and William Bradford became the governor and he decided that they would have a festival. And 90 um, Indians came over and for three days they brought like they brought all these deer and turkeys and all this food and the the Englishmen had food as well and they all ate together and celebrated and and that's what we talk about today as being the first Thanksgiving now a day of Thanksgiving actually was wasn't instituted until about the time of Lincoln I think he did the first one and or Washington did the first, well, Washington definitely did a day of Thanksgiving. But anyway, there's there's a little bit of, you'll want to go research a little bit of other history behind the National Day of Thanksgiving because there were just national days of Thanksgiving and then it was instituted as an annual thing. And then in the 20th century, it kind of became linked back to this original festival and it landed in November. But of course, this actually happened in October because that's when the end of the harvest would have been happening. Now, there's a few more pieces to the story that I'll just mention before we finish up here that are that are really kind of amazing. The um, merchant adventurers, there was a leader among them named Thomas Weston, and he he kind of betrayed them. This what what's really sad is this this fall after the celebration of their harvest, they were all set up like they would have been totally fine the next year. They had plenty of food for everyone. 
But the merchant adventurers, without notifying them, sent over like 30 or 40 more people without any supplies. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. Why in the world they would do that, nobody can make sense of. And Thomas Weston was one of the people behind that. And so now they had to ration everything and the men weren't strong enough to do the work that needed to be done because they didn't have enough food to eat. And so it was really like three years that they were on the verge of starvation. The first three years, they had to struggle just to stay alive, just to have enough food to eat. And what's fascinating is that Thomas Weston eventually decided he was going to create his own colony and he sent people over there and he came over there and it ended up kind of destroying his life. He he wandered into camp, uh, I mean, into Plymouth one day and William Bradford, and he was, he was almost naked. He had been ransacked by um, some Indians there and he was just um, like, didn't have anything to eat. And I can't remember the story of what happened to him, but it's just amazing that he had that consequence. Anyway, he wandered off again. They, William Bradford forgave him. And he was actually portrayed by several people uh, that he forgave. And Thomas Weston was one of them. They actually gave him some money and some food and sent him on his way. And he was, he wandered off and was never seen again, which is kind of sad. Um, then about three years in, William Bradford's just really sick of this merchant adventure because they, the merchant adventures, they just do whatever they want. They figure, oh, we've paid for this expedition and all this kind of thing. And so we can just do whatever we want. Unfortunately, I can't believe that the Plymouth colony was able to get enough stuff together to start paying them back. But the first ship that they sent back with a bunch of supplies, it was supposed to pay back half their debt and it was seized by pirates. <laughs> so like so many things were so hard and went wrong and just, oh my heavens. And so anyway, finally they decide we've got to break this contract with Merchant Adventures because we're going to starve to death if they keep doing all this stuff. And so William Bradford decided that instead of trying to live kind of communally like they had for the first three years, it had created all kinds of problems with people not wanting to work and blah, blah, blah. He gave everybody their own acre plot of land and things really started to transform. It's just a it's just a principle of government and economics that people, the personal ownership, it's a natural right. And so as they gained personal ownership over some property, they worked a lot harder and, you know, to grow their own wealth. And so they had a lot more by 1623, they weren't worried about starving to death and they were able to, to do the rest of the trade. And, and they made an arrangement with the merchant adventurers to finish paying off the debt. In fact, three of the men, three or four of the leaders, William Bradford was one of them, basically took on the rest of the debt to pay back the merchant adventurers to let the other colonists be able to have the freedom to, to start thriving. And uh, he was betrayed in that as well by one of the men that was supposed to be handling the finances and he forgave him. Anyway, it, just an incredible man in the way that he treated the Native Americans, the way that he treated the people of his colony and his commitment to, to sacrificing for other people and... Um, I don't know, just, he was just so dedicated to God and just such a good, in so many little instances, like one time these guys got in an argument and they had a duel and they harmed each other. And so he ordered that they had to be tied to each other until they worked out their differences. <laughs> just like, you know, and there, you know, he, Squanto actually wound up betraying him and he would, didn't want to turn him into Massasoit because they were such good friends. And he, Squanto had done so much for the colony. And anyway, Squanto ended up dying. And so he didn't have to turn him in. But 
he just was not perfect, you know, definitely not perfect, but such an incredible mission-driven man, felt so called to do the things that he did, felt that God was with him, continued to see God's hand in his life. A, a woman came over and they were able to marry and he was able to have a happy family life. The sad thing is that at the end of his life, near the end of his life, he had some regrets. He felt like that, that Plymouth hadn't done what it was, what he wanted it to do. People started moving further and further out of town onto bigger and bigger plots of land. And so Plymouth Colony never had more than about 100 to 200 residents at a time. And it wasn't this really kind of thriving religious community that he really wanted it to be and that he had envisioned. But he had done so many great things and he had made living in North America really possible. And he had done it around family and he had done it um, the, the right way for the right reasons. And that's why, you know, the North really had much higher levels of freedom and no slavery and just really, really cool, better relations with Native Americans and, until some other people came in and, and that kind of broke down. But um, he wrote the general fundamentals, which laid out the governing principles of Plymouth. And that document actually ended up being very beneficial to other later colonies and towns and cities and states. So the, the, the way that he lived his life is just so exemplary. The dedication that he had when he, when he was older, he started learning Hebrew and studying other things and ended up uh, being governor of Plymouth for 36 years and died at 67. So during this Thanksgiving week, my challenge to all of us is to think more about the sacrifices that were made for us to have what we have. The religious freedom, the civil freedom that we enjoy was made at a great cost to many people. I mean, we haven't even gotten into Revolutionary War or Civil War or any, anything like that. We're just talking about one man who sacrificed so much to try to create a place where we could be civilly free and religiously free. And we owe William Bradford and William Brewster and so many of these other men and women so much honor and gratitude especially this week. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can go get your free copy of The Mission Driven Life at themissiondrivenmom.com and listen to that audio book to learn about other great men and women who have sacrificed for what they knew was right and true. I hope that you will have a marvelous Thanksgiving and be inspired to just be a little bit better and follow in the footsteps of those who sacrificed for what they knew to be true.